asset management is kind of a funny thing in that it's kind of hard to figure out exactly what we mean by asset management. I mean, what does an asset manager do? I mean, it's obvious what a property manager is does, right? They manage the property, but what is it? what's different about managing an asset? So in this module, we're gonna go through asset management and two different lenses on the role of an asset manager. So one is the role of sort of the rules that you need to follow and the duties, and then other lens is kind of the, uh, some approaches in order to really be a successful asset manager. All right, so what does it take to be a good asset manager? Well, first and foremost, to be a syndicator, an asset manager, you are a fiduciary. And I cannot emphasize enough how incredibly important that role is. This is where you earn the trust of your investors because you are trustworthy, you are a fiduciary, and you act that way. I've seen situations where there are, have been syndicators, not projects of mine, but other syndicators that I've either been an attorney on or I've coached people through, um, situations where a team member, not my clients and not anybody else, but was acting in less than a fiduciary manner. That's inappropriate. That is not acceptable at all. You will never have a long career in this business if you do not act as a fiduciary. So that's all well and good. But what do I mean about acting like a fiduciary? Well, first off, the number one rule is you always act with loyalty, prudence, and care. So that means that to everything that you're doing with this investment, you view this asset as someone else's and you take care of it accordingly, that you take such care for this, for this asset that is you're mindful, you're diligent, you really, really take good care of it. You are a steward for the asset itself. So while you may take care of your things very well, if you're like me, you actually take care of other people's things even better because it's just the right thing to do. That's what we're talking about here, is applying that loyalty, uh, prudence, and care to everything you do. You favor the investor when you have an opportunity to over yourself, except to the things that you already disclosed, like the fees and things like that, were already disclosed. So there are, is the conflict of interest and you still get paid. I don't mean that favoring the investor always means you stop taking those things. That's not what you do but it's following the rules of what you set out. You said that you're gonna take good care of this uh, asset for them, now it's time to do that. The second thing is fair dealing. You treat your investors equally. Now, I don't mean that you treat them literally equally, uh, that you can't do anything where it's just like on everything's on conference call and everything has to be completely equal. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is if there is an opportunity or to be uh, for a vote or something like that, you give every single investor their proper weight and listen to them and just treat them well. Uh, 
the, you treat your investor who may have come in for $5,000 and you let an investor in for that. And the investor who came in for a million dollars, you treat them both like the most important investor in your deal. Does that mean you have to call the $5,000 investor first when something comes up? No, absolutely not. You can certainly call people in the order that uh, you find appropriate. If you think it's by how much money they put in or it's just by based on the person you like the most, that's okay. But you always give everybody the same amount of information. You give everybody the same ability to have input into whatever you're talking about. And if there's a vote, you count their votes according to however you're supposed to count the votes. That's really all it means. You've disclosed conflicts, and so conflicts is a very important part of it. If a conflict arises later, I think it's important to disclose that conflict as soon as it's identified. If you haven't identified the conflict before, disclose it and then really think about whether it's a conflict that you want to keep, whether that is a conflict that you shouldn't just give up because it creates this um, where you're not favoring the investor right. You should have disclosed it from the very beginning before they get into the investment. Maybe it's something that you can give up. Now, I'm not saying you have to, but it's something to at least consider. To me, the most, well, to me, the second most important duty of a fiduciary after loyalty, prudence, and care, the second most important is confidentiality. Now, this kind of goes all over the place. I am probably in the minority that I am militant on the confidentiality of my investors. I believe that they should never have anything about them known to anyone outside of me knowing it. Um, so it, I'll give you an example. In one of the properties that I syndicated, there was a lawsuit that happened and we were brought into a lawsuit. As part of that lawsuit, uh, we actually hired an outside firm to represent because I don't want the conflict of that was inherent of me representing the syndication as an attorney, which I could have done, uh, but uh, me representing as the attorney in exchange for fees where there was a, you know, it wasn't, there was a conflict there that I could overcharge on fees. So I decided not to take that. We hired an excellent attorney um, who managed the, the case. Uh, I worked with them to manage the case to some extent, just in terms of making sure that we had, uh, that it was moving forward uh, as properly as possible. And it was, and they did a terrific job. Now, during that lawsuit, the uh, opposing side had propounded discovery against us about trying to seek all of our uh, investors. They just wanted the names and, and contacts and how much they had invested and everything that we told them and everything that their conversations was. Now, this is normal for a lawsuit. Now, normally this would not be a, a, an issue for many syndicators. They would have provided that information, not me. I don't think that's appropriate. I spent a lot of our own money, not investor money. I made sure that we spent a lot of our, I spent a lot of my time gratis because I do not want my investors getting out. 
If somebody gave me their trust and is investing $200,000 with me, it's not, my, it's not for me to start saying so-and-so invested with us. I think it's extremely important duty. Um, again, I'm in the minority. Most are very free about saying who's invested with them. I think it's inappropriate. Uh, that's my two cents. And I'm, I would encourage you to be the same, have the same belief on confidentiality. It's just not appropriate. Uh, that said, uh, I also am, you know, presently in the Los Angeles. I live in a very, very, um, uh, Hollywood part of the city where uh, we, we I'm at my office is in Calabasas. There's a lot of very famous people nearby and a lot of my investors are names of people that you've heard of. So they have trusted me with their money and they've trusted me with their identity and they would drop me in a heartbeat if I revealed who those investors were to the public. The, it is, they are very concerned that it is not anybody else's business, and I agree with them 100%. I don't disclose who those people are. You'll never get it out of me. I could be tortured. I'm not giving them up. So uh, that's how much I believe in confidentiality. Um, so confidentiality, uh, extremely important, but being a fiduciary is one of the lenses that you really need to look at your role of being a syndicator or an asset manager through. The second piece that is important to look at it through is the piece of, um, of adding value. What you're trying to do is you're trying to maximize every penny that you can. Now you put together a good business plan for these people and you're saying, I think we're gonna hit a 17% IRR over the five years. Wouldn't it be nice if you had promised them 17% and you delivered them 23%? Wouldn't that be nice? Do you think they're going to invest with you again? You bet they are. So it's always striving to see how much you can just get that property as to produce as much income for your investors as possible. So let me give you a few ideas on how that can work. So obviously it is um this is a discussion of value add value add at its very heart we're talking about two things we're talking about either we're talking about cash well actually let's start with what we mean by value as you know value equals noi over cap rate Oops, don't know why I wrote car. NOI over cap rate. That's the equation for value, right? So I'm trying to add value. I'm trying to get this as big as possible. I want massive, 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 massive value, right? So how do I do that? Well, let's look at the equation, NOI, and here, we're talking not really about NOI. I mean, that's the value for coming up with the value of a property, but actually I'm talking here on value add about cash flow. I want that to be as big as possible. I want to get lots and lots and lots of cash. And when we're talking about cap rate, 
What we're really talking about is where your property sits for like properties, remember? That's how we come up with the cap rate uh, that we apply in determining our value. Well, this is really kind of like appreciation and positioning. Right? So the the higher I make my NOI, this part, the bigger my value is going to be, and the lower my cap rate, right? I'm trying to drive it down so that my cap rate is very, very small. If I took a apartment building that was, you know, realistically, it was kind of run down, and so it was probably like a six and a half cap, but I pumped in value and pumped in value and made it like the hottest place in town, I'm getting below a four cap right now for that building. And man, you'd be getting massive, massive value as well. Uh, all to which would affect your bottom line uh, that you're going to get give to your investors. So let's talk first about this first part about how we pump up the the uh, cash flow. So let's clear this off a little bit. It's a little clear. Let me clear these out. It's a little clear. Just want it easy to read. Okay. All right. So how do we do that? So this cash, this NOI part. What we want to do is we want to drive up income. And we want to drive down expenses, right? The more income, the more cash flow. The less expenses, the more cash flow. So how can we deal with more income? Well, here's just a few ideas for you. Is, um, is when we look at square footage of the building, I mean, that's the basis for how you're getting rents. A lot of times that is part of your income as well, right? So the income's based on so many dollars per square foot. So what if you had more square feet? Now you can either do that by just adding on, which is an obvious way, but one way that I've been very successful at in the past is by remeasuring the building. So the standard measurements for a building, for real, real estate, and this generally isn't for apartments, but it could be. Uh, but for office buildings or for retail buildings um, or industrial buildings, the main body that kind of comes up with advice on how to measure a building is called BOMA. So that's the Building Owners and Managers Association. Now, BOMA, over time, because it's run by owners and managers, has come up with ways to increase the, the volume of, of a floor space on just generally on how we measure the building. So what started out for me once with a 10,000 square foot building ended up being over a 12,000 square foot building. That added a huge amount of value, right? That's 20% more money right there. 20% is a lot of cash. And it was all cash, all income, and not expenses because it was all just on that side and it didn't change the expense side at all, right? It just added complete value. Um, the other way is to add tenants. Now, how do you add tenants to an existing building? Well, 
Think about cell towers. Can you get a cell tower on that building? Can you get a, a billboard? What about vending? Is vending a possibility there? Those are all just different ways for you to make other income as well. Uh, then there's services. Are there services that you can add? Like one of the big ones I see a lot of office buildings do is by providing phone service or data service to their, uh, to their tenants. By making that available to them, they can sell it at, they can buy it at a decreased rate, sell it back to their customers at full rate, and now suddenly they're making a lot of money off of just the, 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 that part. Or is car charging, you know, they could make charge, make car charging part of it as well. Or what about signage? Signage is another way that you can do that. The signs that you see, the monument signs on retail centers, oftentimes there's not, there's no charge for it, but there could be, and your tenants may be willing to pay for special placement in that signage. If it's not in their lease, it could become part of their lease and that it's up to them whether or not they want to appear on that monument sign. Charging for parking is also another way that can play, uh, take place. Now, it all has to be done under the guise of the lease, right? So you don't, you can't just charge for parking if it says in the lease that they get free parking. So just make sure that you are complying with the lease itself. The lease is the lease. Um, and then lastly, just looking at what that rental value is. So can I make it so the space is more desirable so I can charge more rents for it? Uh, this is what happens when you flip a unit in, uh, in an apartment building, right? By redoing the kitchens and the bathrooms, you're making it more desirable so you can get more rent. Um, on the expenses side, there are things you can do too. One thing I've seen work very well is solar power. So solar is a great way that, that a lot of syndicators are leveraging, not only lowering the operating costs, but because a lot of times there are tax credits associated with that. I've seen syndicators, including the syndicator of the building I'm in right now, what he does is he syndicates the solar portion of the building and then applies those tax credits and makes them available for the investors in those syndications. Uh, it's brilliant, he makes extra money that way and uh, it works, everybody wins. Um, security. Are there ways to lower your security costs? If you have somebody appearing, uh, coming on, on site or somebody who is on site all the time, what would happen if you just had a security system with, with cameras that was monitored remotely? Is that going to bring the, the cost down? Submetering. If you are paying, if you are getting all the meters for your, for your tenants, you have a lot of extra work to go through in order to make sure to try and get all of your tenants to pay their proper amount of utilities. And you probably are eating some of these costs. Submetering can take care of that problem for you so that, pro so that the expense is now completely on the tenant and it's not your problem. Um, there are, is also the issue of property tax appeals. So if you think that you can save money on the property taxes, then uh, so much the better. 
So you may be looking at this list and thinking to yourself, but till then I do, um, do retail and we have all triple net leases. None of this matters. Well, that's not true. Uh, the more you lower your expenses for your tenants in that case, the more money that they have available to pay you rent. Tenants look at the, at the numbers that they're writing on the check as the money that they're spending. They're not looking at it as this is my rent amount and this is my cam amount. It, they just don't look at it that way. They look at it as I'm writing a $15,000 a month check. So the more you drive down those expenses, the more that, that $15,000 is going to you rather than to those expenses. So that is how we affect the NOI portion of it. But the huge leverage is also this capital uh, expenses, right? So how on earth do we drive down cap rates? Cap rates is really the look of, you know, the where the how the property itself is positioned in the market rate in the market. So uh, I would look at things like tenant mix. Um, architecture, is there something I can do to make this more appealing? Architecture uh, uh, to to a new tenant. Uh, how is ingress and egress going? Can I make it easier for people to get into a center? There's a center near my home that is horrible. It has, I mean, literally the worst parking in the world. It has not only staggered parking, but it's out of weird diagonals and all the diagonals run into each other. I mean, it was designed by a child scribbling and I think they mistook and uh, decided to apply that to their how their parking plan is but also the ingress and egress how does that organize you may even find extra parking spaces as you redesign the ingress egress and the parking lot you may find extra parking spaces which you can also charge for um, and then marketing now you're probably not going to market a strip center but you probably could market a fairly good sized office building or something like that. If you make your office building a prominent office building, give it a name that's cool and make it something that, wow, this is really like the cool place to be. You're going to start drawing more professionals that want to put their office there and are willing to pay more rent, but also it adjusts how it's positioned in the market. So it becomes a more of a pride of ownership and people are willing to pay a lower cap rate for that building when it's time to sell. That is an overview of two different lenses for which to look through the asset management role. Now, you must look at it through the lens of as a fiduciary, but you all, as a fiduciary, you're applying your loyalty, prudence, and care, as we talked about. So part of that loyalty, prudence, and care is maximizing that value and adding as much value constantly to the property for the benefit of your investors. Now, in the next module, we're going to go through some of the high-level stuff about property management. We're not going to dive too deeply into exactly how to manage a property, but we're going to give an overview about the things you need to know as an asset manager when it relates to property management.